Hey everybody, hello and welcome to The Swim Brief. I am Chris DeSantis, I'm joining you alone today and I'm also joining you for the first time in a long time with a nice microphone. So let me know if you're a listener, uh, let me know if you can tell an audio difference in this podcast, if things sound a little bit better to you, I'd appreciate your uh, feedback. You can write me swimbriefpodcast at gmail.com. You can also submit questions there and comments, even on today's podcast, because we're going to get into something pretty spicy today. Um, like many of you, I have been watching the world championships just concluded in swimming, and it was a big upset for the U.S. team. Um, and there's even people out there, um, intrepid swimming announcer Rowdy Gaines among them, who are acting like it's not an upset, but it is very much an upset. Um, Australia opened up a can of whoop-ass on the United States in this competition. And um, I want to get into what I think about that reality. Um, what are some of the implications of it? What are some of the angles that I'm looking at it from? And um, start to look forward a little bit. Uh, with it as well. So there, there's a lot of different directions I, I want to go with this, but you could hear the first one here in my intro. And that is just, let's just admit that Australia won. Okay. Australia was the dominant team at this world championships. Okay. Um, and honestly, anybody at the U S side, I know that the U S won more total medals, but the fact that they were so far ahead in the gold medal count, and now I want to look it up in the background. Um, the fact that they were so far ahead in the gold medal count. Um, I, if, if anybody in the U.S. here, I'm looking. I see 13 to seven. Anybody in the U.S. says that they would look at total medals versus gold. I just don't think they're telling the truth. Um, I do think that, you know. We define ourselves as the dominant country traditionally in swimming in the United States because we win gold medals. That's first place. Um, you know, by virtue of winning a lot of silver, I don't, there's nothing wrong with uh, silver. You're the second best in the world. But just if we're splitting hairs on the point of which is the best team, then I think it's pretty obvious that a team that wins the most gold medals is in fact the best team in one of these contexts. So um, right off the top here, I wanted to dispel any kind of uh, notion that perhaps, you know, the U S is, is, or was the best team at the 2023 world championships. Uh, I think that Australia was that team. And I want to acknowledge that, um, uh, while I was watching a clip of Kate Campbell <laughs> referencing Rowdy's comments and calling the U.S. sore losers, uh, you find no sore losers here. I fully admit that uh, at we, as if I'm on the U.S. team, that we we lost. Um, and I'm definitely not an Australia fan. Uh, so take that with with all the bias uh, that it carries with us. And I think. Um, you know, the Australia is really close. Uh, the bigger theme here is that Australia is really close to completing a kind of comeback arc. Um, 
I think that that arc really started in 2016 in the wake of the 2016 Olympics. That was a meet where Australia came into the meet with a lot of hype. Um, they had a lot of swimmers that, uh, you know, on the, if you, <laughs> I guess there's a psych sheet for the Olympics. If you look at the sheet, you know, they had a lot of swimmers that um, were projected to win and win gold medals. And they had a lot of misses on that as well. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think about in this is, um, as a difference probably between Australia and us, I, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert on the Australian, uh, swimming system or even understand necessarily. And I'll get into this a little bit later, why I don't think it's important necessarily what they did at a federation level to turn this around. Um, but I think that at the very least, there was an admission in Australia that we didn't do as well as we expected. And um, I'll be really curious to see what we, what we view in the U.S. Uh, coming out of this point. Sorry, everybody, I'm back now. That interruption was brought to you by my kids on vacation, knocking away at the door. Um, anyway, back to the point I was, I was making is we've never really seen from the United States any kind of moment where they have had to say, hey, we came into this with really this meet with really, really high expectations and um, we're not the dominant team anymore. Um, and, you know, so I'll be really curious, rowdy gains aside, to see what kind of discussion we see within the United States about uh, this championship as we sit here, you know, less than a year out, I guess, or a year out from Paris, um, give or take. It's, um, I, I tried to look up, you know, is there really a historical precedent for this? But, um, you know, Australia has never really in, in modern history come close to this level of dominant performance over the U.S. I mean, I am old enough to remember um, the last time Australia sort of peaked as a swimming nation, and that would have been probably in the late 90s um, into the early 2000s. But, uh, you know, looking at stuff like uh, 2001 World Championships, um, you still have, or, or even the 2004 Olympics, which is the closest it ever got in the Olympics, um, it's never really been that close on the gold medal front. Um, in 2004, the U.S. won 12 gold medals to Australia's seven, and they were 28 to 15 in total medals in swimming at the Olympics. So um, it was not really that close. It was basically the U.S. two to one over Australia. And so to see that flipped, I mean, this is actually really, really dramatic. And this is abnormal. Um, and we've not really seen this uh, level in in modern swimming history um, or or even beyond modern swimming history. You know, if you look at some of uh, how dominant the U.S. has been, no matter what era you you look at, it's um, they've always just kind of been there. And so it's it's an unprecedented situation. It's sort of a first of your 
of its kind situation. And I'd be really curious to see what the reaction is uh, from within the U.S. I don't think it's time for anybody to push the, the panic button. I do think that there are some environmental factors that we ought to be paying attention to in the U.S., but none of them are things that, you know, one person or one decision maker can just sort of like move the needle on and then everything will be good. You know, we, we are sort of where we are um, with the group that that we have of athletes and coaches um, heading into Paris. Uh, I think, you know, there are uh, the U.S. team is is young. I think there we have a lot of people on our roster, a lot of athletes on our roster that certainly are probably just based on age um, due to keep improving quite a bit through the next year. But it's um, it's going to be honestly, as I was thinking about preparing for this podcast, it's going to be one of the most fun Olympics to watch. I think it may be the most I've ever looked forward to watching a swimming at the Olympics. And I love watching swimming at the Olympics. You know, I love the sport of swimming. I love, um, frankly, cheering for the United States, um, cheering for Denmark as well. That's right. I'm a, I'm a sports bigamist. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the Olympics, I, I sort of play both sides in that, um, in that, in that respect. Um, and I have to say it's not as fun as a sports fan to cheer for the team that always wins and always wins dominantly. Okay. It is much more interesting to watch a competition where you go into it going, I don't know who's going to win this. And I think you'd have to say based on this result that for the first time in my lifetime, the U S is going into the meet as an underdog. And that's just really interesting. I'm really curious to um, see what that's all about and to watch um, what that looks like. Because I think that um, I think that the United States has, in a certain way, always brought a bit of institutional knowledge to these competitions is talking to somebody else about it. When I, when I say institutional knowledge, I mean, just as the team that typically wins, um, you can, you can kind of bring that into a team atmosphere, even when you have people that are new to the team, right? We're going to have new people, um, that have never been on an Olympic team going to the Olympics next year, but they, they get some of the benefit of an experience of, the U.S. having traditionally been the dominant team, but that's going to be challenged a little bit in the Paris Olympics, right? It's it's um, it's not going to be as assumed. It's um, it's never been more competitive a situation for them. And just as a a, a pure swimming fan, somebody that enjoys watching the sport of swimming, that enjoys watching. Two people, you know, go up and down the pool or maybe just down the pool um, in the case of a, of a 50 free and see who touches first. It's very compelling to have this actually be a legitimate team competition. Um, and I don't I don't expect, by the way, that there'll be any uh, outside of very niche swimming circles. There'll be any real coverage of the team competition. But still, 
for me, um, a swimming nerd, like I will be following it. And I'm really curious to see how this plays out. Um, I do, I do think that the Australians are a favorite. Um, but in terms of the Olympics, uh, one point that I do want to acknowledge is, um, you know, the U.S. has a history of being a little bit down in world championships. It's not typically the same level of dominance we see for the U.S. team in a world championship setting versus an Olympic setting. Um, and I think you can assign whatever narrative you want to that, you know, like we we're sort of um, uh, Olympics focused or, you know, we just have sort of more people that are um, amping up for that Olympic year and maybe um, not quite going for it. Maybe they're uh, Michael Andrew, you know, their dog ate their breaststroke training and they they forgot to train for breaststroke um, this year, even though they're the American record holder. Sorry, I had to get in one more there. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there, there's some differences in a, in a world championship year versus an Olympic year. And, uh, typically the U S is just better in an Olympic year. And you can look that historically over the years, um, especially look at not necessarily the world championships the year before the Olympics, but you know, the year after the Olympics, um, there tends to be a bit hang, bit of a hangover for uh, the U.S. team who will come off a real dominant performance in the Olympics and not quite be the same um, as the others. One of the things I referenced earlier is I said, you know, I'll be interested to see what some of the reaction is. I'm actually, I know uh, people who've been uh, listening to this podcast or reading me back when I was a writer for a long time might be surprised to hear this, but I'm not that interested in what USA Swimming is going to do at a federation level. Um, you know, I, I most of my interest in USA Swimming uh, continues to be um, more on the administrative level, how they regulate um, ethics and standards and um, and who can coach and, and who can't. I think in terms of performance stuff, which is if, the, the, the funny thing is that you know, the, the, the real charter of USA Swimming um, and these national governing bodies at, at, at the inception of these, the real the real point of having them exist is to win gold medals um, and to win as many gold medals as possible. I don't think that they are particularly effective at uh, tilting the scales in favor of that. Like, I, I don't think that, I think that USA Swimming and why wouldn't they uh, as an organization has um, long taken credit for us being a dominant uh, swimming country. But I, I really think that the, you know, organization headquartered in Colorado Springs has almost next to nothing. In fact, in many cases is kind of a hindrance to um, the U S's dominant, uh, the dominant level of performance that we've seen on the international stage. Um, there's two other things that have traditionally really played out well uh, for the United States. One has been, of course, our college system. Uh, and I referenced this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Joel and I were talking about the hiring process within college. Um, even as I'm about to acknowledge some of the shortcomings that I see in the college system right now, no doubt 
the existence of our college system is a huge advantage for the United States uh, in international competition. It just, it keeps so many athletes, domestic athletes. Yes, we have athletes from all around the world that come and train with us, but um, U.S. representing athletes, it keeps so many of them just training and competing at a very high level for a longer period of time. And you cannot underrate that, how many other countries that athletes, unless they have some perception that they're going to be internationally competitive by age 18, which is a pretty early you know, age to have figured that out, um, sort of hit a wall in terms of what is possible for them versus the opportunity and the level of opportunity that we have in the U.S. system. And then secondly, I think that we have always traditionally had in the United States a club system that um, is actually quite decentralized and has a lot of room for innovation um, because it's because it's decentralized um, because and this is where, you know, like, uh, I guess I'm a swimming libertarian, um, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a socialist politically, but when it comes to swimming, all of a sudden I, you know, I turn into Rand Paul. Um, actually, Rand Paul kind of a thing, but we're not going to get into politics here. Um, anyway, the I'm a bit of a swimming libertarian in that in the sense that I think that uh, you know a lot of the success that we see coming out of the club system in the United States um, doesn't have anything to do with. Uh, any top-down sort of uh, edicts coming from USA Swimming. Um, it has much more to do with, you know, people having uh, the ability to be really, really influential on a local level uh, for swim teams. We have a lot of opportunities for coaches um, to either own a team or be in a professional full-time setting coaching swimmers um, versus other places in the world and have a lot of um, creative, I would say creative freedom to do things differently. Um, I can remember coaching in Denmark and um, one of the things that uh, the, the second club that I worked for was very insistent on was uh, uh, as a term for me, hiring was that they, that I would say that I would follow something called ATK. Um, and the ATK was, uh, stood for age related training concept. Um, and the, the idea of it was that, you know, the Federation, the, the Danish swimming had commissioned some scientists to come up with what is the ideal way, like what, you know, how many meters should a 10 year old swim and how many days a week should they swim and how long should the swim practices be and what should the content of the practices be? And so um, I was meant to, you know, take this cookie cutter approach from the from the uh, Federation and apply it to um, to my setting. I, I think in general, to strengthen the U.S. system that we that doesn't really exist, right? There is um, not necessarily that strict a set. And I would say it's not that that many people in Denmark were following it to a T, but when you have something like that, it is influential. Um, and we just don't really have that 
in the US um, system. That said, acknowledging those two strengths, I think both those strengths are very challenged right now. Uh, the college system, as I said in the previous podcast, I think um, the college system is suffering for coaching talent. And that is not a specific indictment of any college coach. I have a lot of friends that are college coaches. Some of them listen to this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm not saying you're a bad coach. I'm saying that overall, I think there is less competition on the margins for college coaching jobs. So you won't necessarily see um, a dip in competition for uh, the major head coaching jobs. But as you get further and further from the center and you get into some of these assistant coaching jobs, I can see that schools are having a hard time filling positions. And um, that does have an impact. If these are our sort of power centers for elite swimming, it does have some impact because that system benefited from a long time for a long for a long time from there being pretty intense competition at the margins um, within the group of people that wanted to be swim coaches, pretty intense competition at the margins for some of these um, positions. And I just don't believe that it's there anymore. I think um, the college culture um, around coaching overall has uh, made more people than previously just say like, I, you know, I, I can do something else with my life. I love swimming, but um, I don't need this. I don't need the hassle of all this. I don't need the stress of all this. I don't need um, an administrator just sort of waiting to cut bait on me. Um, and so I think that that has caused a talent bleed in the, in the system. And, um, but there's also a greater kind of professional thing going on uh, that I see bleeding over into the uh, club system as well. I think the club, the club hiring is similarly suffering at the margins. Um, and that has more to do in my mind with um, a lot of youth sports and, and club swimming, like the, the business model kind of being uh, broken for lack of a better term, the business model just um, really has been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And in my opinion, you know, like I'm not one that it's going to break. I, I think it's really broken right now. Um, and what I see as it being broken is right now, I think you just have, um, even, you know, some of, some of the best people, um, doing the best job, working the hardest, uh, they are, you know, they are not, they're just not having a particularly positive experience coaching. And I don't mean that it should be fun all the time. But if we have a job that, you know, like coaching, where we all acknowledge, like, it's not going to be the most well paid, it's not not something that's going to make you you rich, um, then it should be a job that, you know, at least has a, a good lifestyle to go with it. And I think um, that has been stretched. And I think that, you know, families are feeling this on the other end, because 
they're kind of dissatisfied with the experience that they're having, um, having their kid in the sport of swimming. They can't understand and they, they think it's expensive. Right. So it's not that the if, I, if you tell them the business model is broken. Yeah, they're going to say, yeah, I'm paying too much. Um, but I just think that there's too big of a gap between, you know, um, between actually um, what what the system should be and and where it is. I think that actually probably uh, most people would be happy. Uh, most families having their kid in the sport of swimming would be happy paying more if they realized how much more quality they could get out of paying 10, 15, 20% more than they are right now. Um, and I say that as somebody who's kind of working outside of the, the club system and it drives business my way. So by all means, continue to uh, keep that business model broken. I don't know why I'm giving people this advice, you know, um, but I, I would love to find some other way to make money. I'm, I'm innovative enough that I could fill in gaps in other places. But right now, um, there is just so much business coming my way from stuff that uh, I think that if, you know, if um, people could just collectively decide, like, hey, you know, uh, we need to pay a, more to get a better experience at the other end. The coaches, um, the primary coaches of these people would have more time to interact with individual athletes, would have more time to talk to them about the process of what's what's happening and what they're doing um, and sort of the big picture of where they are headed. And that would definitely cut into to, to my business model. Um, and and so it's not that I necessarily think that I'm providing a service um, that, you know, the for that, that people couldn't fill if they had the time. It's just simply there. I'm running into so many situations where people have just been stretched beyond so far beyond the point at which um, they should have. In, in, especially in some of these club situations and, um, and, and frankly, in the college system as well. So um, I've gone very far astray from the Australian piece of it, but I think, you know, it's important for us in the U.S. to have a conversation about what's next for us um, as a swimming nation. And uh, I don't know that necessarily a, a very intelligent conversation is happening anywhere else. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, I think you're probably got some pretty intelligent feedback about what, what you see in the system. I would love to hear from you. As I said, off the top, swimbriefpodcast at gmail.com, send in some questions. Uh, I will be back with Joel later in the week. Uh, we are going to talk about Marchand. We're going to talk about uh, that world record in the 400 IM. We're going to be breaking down that stroke a little bit. Um, and then I'm probably going to be off for a couple of weeks um, because I'm going to go on vacation and I haven't been able to record any content ahead of time. So, uh, going to be a little bit of a slow month from the swim brief, but, uh, except that it's, it's just me and, and Joel, um, doing this out of the, the kindness of our hearts and, and, and a little bit of, uh, of marketing for my business. Um, and so I don't think that we can uh, sustain this when one of us just needs some time off. Uh, so I, I will be back later this week, as I said, um, then a little break coming up. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. 
Thank you to Magic 5 for sponsoring magic5.com slash swim brief, custom fit goggles, surprisingly affordable. So give it a, give it a look and uh, I'll see you guys later this week.